This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gothamites, Lane here. Welcome to episode 6 of Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. This episode is book 1, part 6. We are covering chapters 13, 14, and 15 of the novelization of the 1989 Batman, written by Craig Shaw Gardner. We're coming up pretty quickly on the end of this novel. It has 19 chapters, so after this, there will be two more episodes on the book, and then the um, commentary of Batman episode. And then we'll be ready to move on to book number two. As always, if you have a book suggestion for ones that you maybe want to see me talk about sooner rather than later, let me know. Darknightpros at gmail.com or batmanbooks underscore DKP on Twitter. All right, so let us get into chapter 13, shall we? Chapter 13, scene one. War of the freaks, the headline screamed. Joker and Batman clash at Flugelheim. War of the Freaks? What publicity! The Joker had thought it had been perfection itself, until they had brought him the evening edition of the Globe. War of the Freaks had moved down to the lower right-hand corner, supplanted by a new banner headline, Batman Cracks Joker's Poison Code. Citizens told to avoid the following products. Peter McElroy of On the Spot Action News warns Gotham citizens to avoid the following combinations and proceeds to recite a list, citing every tried-and-true combination the Joker had devised, and even a couple he hadn't thought of. The anchor goes on to say that untainted products are being shipped in as quickly as possible. In the meantime, Gotham citizens wonder, is Batman friend or foe? Joker screams in annoyance. The attention is back on Batman. In case those in attendance aren't fully sure of Joker's feelings, the Clown Prince of Crime whips out a sawn-off shotgun and blasts the television into pieces. With the ever-loyal Bob at his heels, the Joker pushes his way through to the factory. He tells Bob, Bob, you've got to possess strength, greater strength to inflict greater pain. We've got a Batman to kill, and I want to clean my claws. My notes. So not only is Joker's part in the newspaper now below the fold, but his smilex-laden puzzle has been solved already. And when I chose the phrase below the fold, it made me pause and think, wow, that's a phrase that younger generations might not know the meaning of. And in turn, that made me think of the difference in dissemination of news information between 1989 and now. That train of thought kind of rabbit holed on me. In many ways, perhaps in most ways, actually, 1989, uh, the year this this movie and book came out. It has a lot more in common with 1939, which is the year that Batman was created, than it does with 2019. 
And most of that has to do with the digital age. We now get breadth of information, but not depth. To kind of show you where I'm going with that, I had a a creative writing professor who would tell us, don't write a mile wide and an inch deep. Write an inch wide and a mile deep. And I think that's really good advice. Because we have access to so much information, information that we have this overabundance, oversaturation of shallow frippery. I'm an older millennial, but I am a millennial. And my generation is, especially those of us who are closer in age to Gen Xers, we're the last generation to remember what the world was like before the internet took off. And that's kind of a really interesting point in history to be. We have so much information at our fingertips. And it's a good thing, but it also has its downfalls. Newspaper sales have plummeted. People access their news for free. Isn't that a good thing, you ask? Well, in a way, yes. But the economy no longer supports the number of investigative journalists it used to. There aren't as many Alley Knoxes out there, boots on the ground, snooping around for a story. It's kind of sad, actually. Now, I'm also guilty of not buying newspapers. So my news, like many of us, it consists of... 24-7, who said what, what does this mean? No, that's a lie. Here's what the Kardashians are doing. We, We kind of tune out, don't we? We pay nothing for our news these days. And you know what? We get what we pay for. So what started that long winded tangent? Um, I guess I started thinking about how Joker might handle today's news. Even back then, news stories had a short lifespan, only being covered until something newer and more exciting came along. But these days, I feel that life cycle is so much shorter than it used to be. I'm sure Joker would get some talking heads covering him for a little while, but the moment something else happened, the attention focuses elsewhere. So I'm curious, what do you guys think? If Joker is looking for notoriety, which of course he usually is, what would his best avenue be in today's world? Would he stick with the local news stations to air his stories on the evening news? Would he try for a national or global outreach? Or is his audience only ever truly just one person? And that person being Batman. That was a rabbit hole. Chapter 13, Scene 2. His eyes would no longer focus on the maps. There was only so long, Bruce realized, he could go without sleep, depending on action and caffeine to keep him awake. But there had to be a pattern in the Joker's movements. Something hidden in these maps that would lead to a secret factory. If only he could concentrate enough to put all the pieces together. Alfred brings a fresh cup of coffee to Bruce, then clears his throat. Bruce knows this is a sign the old butler is about to speak. Sir, Miss Vale called again. I don't know what you intend to do about her, but I think your present course of action may just strengthen her resolve. She's quite tenacious. Bruce sighs and replies simply, I know, Alfred. As the butler goes on about his work, Bruce wonders if he needs to step away from the maps for a while to give his brain a bit of time to rest. Perhaps then he'll see a pattern. But the nagging sensation of unfinished business disquiets his thoughts. The millionaire playboy facade is sometimes problematic. He doesn't want to hurt Vicky Vale, and neither he nor Batman like unfinished business. That was another great thing about the good old days. Cell phones are great and are basically an invaluable part of life. But man, sometimes it was nice not to be connected 24-7, to not be reachable. 
The one thing that cell phones do have over landlines, aside from portability, is the ability to text. I dislike speaking on the phone. I find texting much more convenient in so many ways. But I'm digressing again. I really like all these little facets of Bruce Wayne slash Batman at work here. It's all very subtle and understated, which just makes it work. You have Bruce Wayne, the employer and friend of Alfred. Bruce Wayne, the detective. Bruce Wayne, the love interest. Bruce Wayne, the bearer of the fallout from the millionaire playboy facade he must keep on in public. And in all of this, you just have Bruce Wayne, the human being. Chapter 13, Scene 3 Who could that be? Vicky walked quietly to her apartment door and looked through the spy hole. It was the last person on earth she expected to see, at least at this point. It was Bruce Wayne. Let's see what happens next on the stage of... Rest in Peace Theater is proud to present... That time Vicky finally confronts Bruce Wayne. Well, if it isn't the Invisible Man... You saw through me. Come in. So... Listen, I know we're supposed to ease into this sort of thing, but I'm really perplexed with you. Yeah, I know. That's why I came. I... You lied to me about leaving town. You won't return my phone calls... Then I saw you march through bullets like like you were trying to commit suicide. Look, I I did kind of lose it for a while. But some things just affect me. Affect you? You were a totally different person. You have to understand crime. I I love this city. See? Now he's back. The sweet, caring guy. But you seem to be at least two people. Bruce, what's going on? Before he can answer, or at least come up with an evasion, there is a knock at the door. A delivery boy with a package for Miss Vale. At first, Vicky thinks it's something from Bruce, but the brown paper marked with red crown tells her otherwise. Afraid, she calls for Bruce. He takes the package into the kitchen and tells her to shut the door, just in case. My notes... I still feel like their relationship is a little forced. Consider this line. Oh, great, Vicky thought. The new man in her life finally reaches his great moment of confession, and her apartment becomes Grand Central Station. Can she really call him the new man in her life? They had that one night together. When she followed him to Crime Alley, he he eventually ran off without speaking to her other than an, I'm sorry, Vicky. She's called multiple times, and he hasn't returned the calls. That's not a new man in your life. That's a, here's a man I slept with once, and now I have emotional hang-ups because I wasn't expecting to be a one-night stand. All of that is on her. And perhaps I'm, maybe I've been a little too judgy of her, but I'll kind of give you a reason for that in a second. But now, now that Bruce has come to her apartment with flowers, now it's on him for sending mixed signals. Mixed bat signals. If Vicky had tried a couple of times to call and then left it with, Oh well, it was a fun night. At least I know what it feels like to sleep on sheets that cost more than my car. I feel like this relationship between them would have just fizzled out with nothing more. And that 
you know, with Batman's character, that probably would have been better for everybody. So, okay, my reasoning for maybe being a little too um, judgmental of her. A number of years ago, a very good friend of mine had someone with a crush on him. He wasn't interested. You know, they were friends. He made it fairly clear that he wasn't interested. And as far as I'm aware, he didn't send any mixed messages. So she pursued him relentlessly for months, if not longer. And finally, he was just worn down and he surrendered. None of us in our group of friends thought that this was a good idea. And sure enough, he was stuck in a miserable relationship that he started only because he was badgered for so long that he gave in. I'm glad to say that he's been out of this relationship for a long time, but he, he still twitches if uh, the, the person's name is brought up. So I feel like Vicky is just shy of badgering Bruce, and now he's giving in. It just doesn't feel like the start of an honest relationship to me. There was some attraction there from Bruce as well. Maybe my reluctance is also in knowing Batman the character and how relationships just don't really work well for him. Anyway. Oh, and plus, he he's if he's going to be with anyone, it needs to be Selina Kyle. So perhaps my friend's painful history has made me look at this situation with, uh, with a different perspective than what most people would see. I would love to hear what you guys what you guys think, so please write in. Chapter 13, Scene 4 What kind of scum would send this sort of thing to a defenseless citizen? He knew the answer already. There was only one madman crazy enough to send a bomb, or something worse, through the mail. He reached into the hidden compartment in the bottom of his pack. He'd need his utility belt for this. Bruce pulls the belt free and opens the third compartment to the left of the buckle to retrieve his ultrasound scanner. Vicky calls through the door to ask what's going on. Bruce tells her that nothing's ticking. He puts on a gas mask from his belt and then grabs a steak knife from the dish drainer and uses it to carefully slit the wrapping paper. Deep in concentration, he is startled when Vicky knocks again to ask, What's happening? The package bursts open. My notes. I, I was really confused for a moment. First, I thought it was reckless of him to have her in the blast range of what might ever be in the package. And second, I thought, wow, he's pulling his utility belt out for her to see? I didn't realize until <laughs> a little later that, oh, she's on the other side of the door. So when I had initially read that, I, I thought Bruce, Vicky, and the package were in the kitchen. So, oops. Also, I kind of had to chuckle a little bit about Batman, or Bruce, grabbing a steak knife from the drainer. He has an ultrasound scanner and a gas mask, but he doesn't have a knife. Oh well, I guess there's only so many things the utility belt can accommodate. Still, isn't a knife kind of basic? Uh, chapter 13, scene 5. Vicky heard the loud bang even through the door. Bruce, she yelled even more loudly than before. Are you all right? There was no answer. Bruce, I'm coming in. She pushed the door open. Bruce stood in the kitchen, staring at the package. A gloved hand on a spring bounced above the box, a hand holding a bunch of dead flowers. Very poetic, Bruce said. He reached carefully into the flowers and pulled free a large white card with fluttering embossed in purple ink. He handed it to Vicky. She read it aloud. Roses are red. Violets are blue. 
These flowers are dead. You could be, too. She looked up at Bruce. He sent something, she said, her voice barely above a whisper, just before he arrived last time. Bruce nodded his head toward the front door. Vicky realized he was right. They should get out of here. She turned to leave the kitchen. That's when the front door burst open. Of course, it's the Joker and his gang. And, of course, he grins at Vicky and asks if she missed him. But then he sees Bruce. <laughs> well, Miss Vale, another rooster in the hen house. <laughs> Joker pulls out a comically long revolver, touches it to Bruce's cheek, and asks, Tell me something, my friend. Have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? What? Bruce asks. Joker replies, I ask that question of all my prey before I send a draft through their domes. I like the sound of it. Vicky notes that Bruce looks startled for the first time since the Joker has broken in. She follows his line of sight and sees a high-tech belt on the kitchen counter. She's seen that belt before. Joker is too busy monologuing to notice anything amiss. He's chastising Vicky for having taken off from their dinner at the museum without a word of apology with the sideshow phony. He recites, I am only laughing on the outside. My smile is skin deep. If you could see inside, I'm really crying. You might join me for a weep. When Joker reaches out to cup Vicky's chin, Bruce charges. But before he can fully close the distance, one of the thugs punches him, and he collapses in a corner. The Joker points his gun at Bruce and pulls the trigger. A red and yellow bang flag pops out of the barrel. The thugs laugh, and seeing Bruce cowering, Vicky thinks she must have been wrong about the belt. Joker turns his attention back to Vale and starts tugging her toward the door, telling her again that he wants her to take his picture to make him immortal. Someone screams outside. Vicky rushes to the window to look down at the street below. Two policemen are staggering from their cruiser, clutching their throats. Vicky asks, What's wrong with those policemen? Joker replies, Looks like they're rethinking their spot in the social order. Two of Joker's goons hustle her from the apartment, but the Joker does not follow. He stays in the apartment, door closed, alone with Bruce. My notes, um, of course Bruce is acting frightened, but I wonder if he realized ahead of time that the act would also make Vicky question or flat out doubt what it was she saw on the kitchen counter. Does he even know that she saw the utility belt? So one of two things here. A, he's just putting on a show for the sake of his facade, and the doubt he sows in Vicky's mind is a happy accident. Or B, he's putting on a show for the sake of his facade, and to intentionally cover up for his mistake of leaving the utility belt in view. And I'm overthinking this. I, I know, I tend to do this sometimes. And it actually kind of leads me to overthink another thing. Um, Joker's little poem. Not the roses are red, but the other part. Of course, he's overdramatic in everything he does, so he lays it on thick with the poem. But I wonder, is the poem an accidental peek into some of Joker's true psyche? I'm only laughing on the outside. My smile is skin deep. Inside, I'm really crying. Okay, probably not, but it's food for thought. <laughs> Chapter 13, Scene 6. Uh, it's very short, so I'll just read it. They had all turned away. 
He quickly scuttled across the floor, stuffing his utility belt back in his shoulder pack. There were footsteps. He looked up. The Joker's obscene smile shone down upon him. Listen, Bruce, the Joker said in a confidential tone. Never rub another man's rhubarb. Get me? He aimed the gun at Bruce's chest and pulled the trigger. This time, the bullet was real. My notes. Never rub another man's rhubarb. Huh? Okay, (laughs) well that's it for chapter 13. We'll take our first promo break and then come back for chapter 14. As I come around the corner, my headlights hit this animal in the road. Really low in the sky were these floating balls of light. Five or ten seconds earlier, I watched, you know, a six-foot-one, 270-pound guy walk right onto that elevator. The doors closed, they opened back up, and he wasn't there. I heard a low, rowling sound. I can't sleep, can't do nothing. I'm afraid the thing's going to come through my wall. I mean, it just sounded absolutely evil. Monsters Among Us podcast. iTunes, Stitcher, and MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com. Welcome back, folks. Let's start Chapter 14. Chapter 14, Scene 1. Again, this is another very short one, so I'll just read it through. Life was full of its little ups and downs. The press did have this thing about the Batman, and Batman had stolen Vicky Vale right from under the Joker's pale white nose. But now he had Vicky back again just the way he wanted, and he had managed to bump off one of her suitors in the bargain, although that Bruce Wayne was an awfully easy kill. Didn't the man have any fight in him? Still, it was reasonably satisfying, the way the force of the bullet threw Wayne against the wall. The Joker had to admit he so enjoyed a violent death. He left the apartment, careful to close the door behind him, and hurried down the stairs. The boys had already gotten Vicky into the van. The Joker leapt in after them. Gotham Square, he cheered. Lickety-split. It was amazing how good a killing could make you feel. The Joker guffawed. From now on, there would be no more downs. Only ups. For all of Gotham City. And just a quick note for this scene. I'm not really sure how effective this little bit is. It seems to me it would have been a better choice if we had seen this from Vicky's point of view. Uh, maybe to feel her shock or to see the force of Bruce getting getting shot by an actual bullet. We already know that Bruce was shot. We gathered that from the end of the last chapter, which was from from Bruce's point of view. So I think this scene, the only purpose it really served was to drive home that the Joker loves to kill people. And we already know that. Perhaps if it had been from Vicky's point of view, it might have had a little bit more of an impact. Kind of like Bruce Wayne impacting the wall. I I don't know. No, never mind. So it felt just a little bit superfluous. Not a bad scene. Just, I don't know. I think I would have liked it more from Vicky's point of view. Chapter 14, Scene 2. Bruce blinked. He had passed out there for a minute. The force of the bullet must have knocked him out cold. He sat up and examined his side. There was no blood and no bullet hole. He picked up his shoulder bag. There it was, a new hole, two inches from the zipper. The bullet must have gone through here. Bruce opens his bag to see that the ultrasound scanner took the bullet for him. Thankfully, he has others at the Batcave. This scanner, however, is the only reason he's alive. Some people might think that it was just incredible luck, but Bruce liked to think of it as justice. 
He punches some numbers and makes a connection with something that we don't yet know. He can't wait, though. He needs to start after the Joker. After a little riffling through Vicky's clothes, he finds a black ski mask. He puts it on and heads for the roof. So, uh, my notes. Bruce didn't have some sort of plan? Sheer luck is what saved him? When the others left the room and he was alone with the Joker, he just lay there and let himself be shot without a plan? Hmm. I seem to remember in the movie he had actually hidden something in his clothes to help deflect the bullet. Was some sort of tray or something? That is what I would expect from Bruce Wayne. Not just laying there, taking a bullet, and... I mean, by all accounts, he should be dead right now. So... So whatever rewrites happened to change the scene in the movie, it was a good call. Chapter 14, Scene 3 The van was going too fast, even for him. How could you be suave and sophisticated around a beautiful woman when you kept bouncing out of your seat? He reached forward and grabbed Bob's shoulder. Good old Bob. And yelled in his ear, Slow down, you maniac! Good old Bob seems to be losing it, Joker thinks. And the city is getting strange. In fact, he could swear he just saw a guy in a suit and a black mask swinging over the intersection on a rope. Bob slows down to 40 or 50 miles per hour. Now that he was no longer bouncing around, the Joker has the chance to put a hand on Vicky's leg. She tries to move away, but there isn't enough room. But that's one of the Joker's keys to successful romance. Always corner your romantic interest. The Joker puts on what he thinks is a pretty good act of being mournful, as he tells Vicky that the day before yesterday, Alicia threw herself out the window. She didn't seem to appreciate his art, but... You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. My notes? I'm learning a lot about the world of Batman from the good folks over at the BatmanUniverse.net. So far, namely from Chris and Stella. One thing that I recently learned on Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, is back in Batgirl's early days, when she was still trying to prove herself, she felt betrayed when Batman, while she was mid-fall, cut the rope she was using and saved her himself. She confronted him, asked him, why did he do that? And he explained to her that the rope she was using, just regular old rope, would have resulted in severe injury or death because of its inability to slow down her fall. The rope that he and Robin use has elasticity that decelerates their fall enough that it doesn't injure them when they use it. If Batman hadn't cut Barbara's rope and saved her himself, she basically would have ripped her arms out of socket. So that's what's going through my mind as a masked Bruce Wayne swings around... Wait a minute, he had his utility belt with him, didn't he? Okay. I will let this slide, because <laughs> I forgot that he had his utility belt, but I'll also keep this in here because of that interesting information about the uh, the specialized rope. Just in case any of you are wanting to swing around your local cities, make sure you use the appropriate rope. Okay, chapter 14, scene 4. The Joker's van was down below. It had sped from traffic jam to traffic jam. So far, with the aid of his utility belt and some quick runs across rooftops, he had managed to keep the van in sight. Sometimes you could keep up with the scum if gridlock was on your side. The van swerved around mounted policemen. The horse turned around. The cop riding it seemed to have no control over his mount. He swayed back and forth in the saddle and looked around as if he was having trouble keeping the world in focus. 
This isn't the first incapacitated cop that Batman has seen, all the victims of the Joker's shenanigans. Unfortunately, Joker's van finds its way out of the traffic jam and is starting to gain distance from Batman. Fortunately, though, there happens to be an available horse with a half-unconscious cop mounted down below. Batman swings down and lands astride the horse behind the cop. The cop seems mildly amused before passing out altogether. Bruce lowers the man to the sidewalk. The utility belt around Bruce's waist has a blinking red light. Quote, Good. Maybe things would be in order again very shortly. Unquote. With the help of his borrowed steed, Batman continues his pursuit of the Joker. My notes. I really hope this scene made it into the movie. I don't have any memory of it, but I love the idea of Bruce Wayne swinging around in one of his tailored suits with a ski mask and his utility belt. And darn it, I didn't catch Chekhov's horse. So what was skillfully hidden as a romantic horseback ride between Bruce Wayne and Vicki Vale? It was actually setting up the fact that Bruce Wayne is a, a skilled horseman. It's So it's no surprise that horseback riding comes back into this. Hopefully the cops aren't dead. We never really learned anything for sure about the museum patrons, did we? Perhaps they were okay, except for the ones who drowned in their soup because somebody didn't save them from drowning in their own food. Thanks for nothing, Vicky. Chapter 14, Scene 5 He finally saw the van ahead. He had had to ride almost all the way to Gotham Square to catch up. The Joker's van screeched to a halt a block and a half away almost colliding with the barricades. Barricades? Uh, He had forgotten. Today was the mayor's big parade, the 200th anniversary of Gotham City. Could that have something to do with the Joker's plans? The squealing of brakes behind him causes the horse to rear. It is a yellow Volkswagen. Quote, Good. Alfred's timing, as usual, was impeccable. Unquote. Bruce dismounts the horse and climbs into the passenger seat of the Volkswagen, where he begins to change into a spare bat suit. It was a little cramped, but he had practiced this dozens of times, just in case he ever had to change into the bat suit in the passenger seat of Alfred's car. Bruce says, Alfred, find the records on my family. I want to check something. Alfred replies, Yes, sir. Be careful. With a nod, Batman exits the vehicle, remounts the horse, and rides toward Gotham Square. My notes, please, oh please, tell me this scene is still in the movie. Bruce Wayne changing into his bat suit in the front seat of a Volkswagen? And hopefully it's a beetle. I hear they have really impressive headroom, and what with those bat ears. And the color of the car matches his emblem. But again, I have zero memory of this, so I think it got cut, but ah. Can you just imagine Batman practicing getting dressed in Alfred's car? (laughs) Alfred, I need your keys again. Sir, you have an entire fleet of vehicles at your disposal. Must you use mine? Yes. (sighs) Very well, sir. Do mind the upholstery. A quick side note, uh, my fiancé is English. Hi, Ian. And he listens to this podcast. And I'm quite sure he uh, cringes every time I affect a British accent. The thought of him pinching the bridge of his nose and shaking his head just makes doing these audio dramas all the more fun. Chapter 14, Scene 6 The junior high school band was playing Happy Birthday. They weren't playing it very well, of course, which made it even better. What with those red, white, and blue birthday banners flapping overhead? 
And then the mayor, standing pompously up there on his pompous reviewing stand, along with those other pillars of the community, Dent and Gordon, the mayor started to speak, and that way only the mayor could. Happy birthday, Gotham City. You know every city has a father, and no one could have been a better father than John T. Gotham. Joker decides it's time to join in on the fun. He makes sure that good old Bob brings Vicky along so that she won't miss out. The Joker and his boys make their way through the crowd, while the mayor waves his hands at a canvas-covered statue, saying, I dedicate this statue of a man who embodies the past, present, and future of our great city. With that, he pulls the cord and the canvas drops away, revealing not a statue of John T. Gotham, but of Joker himself, complete with a pair of Uzis. The Joker directs Vicky to start taking photos. The mayor doesn't seem too happy, but Joker isn't sure if it's because of the switched statues or the fact that he, the Joker, is holding a real Uzi up to the mayor's belly. The mayor asks for someone to call the police. Joker asks, What police? And gestures toward the numerous unconscious, or dead, police officers all around them. Smiling at his crowd, Joker says, Hi there, fellow Gothamites. As the next founding father of this fair city, I declare these celebrations well and truly open. He fires his Uzi into the air, which tears apart a banner. Oops. Something comes hissing through the air and wraps around the statue's neck. Quote, It looked like one of those things they used in South America. Bounzo, Bilbo. It was on the tip of the Joker's tongue. Bolo, that's what they called them. Made of two balls attached by a rope. Except in this case, the hissing noise was coming from the balls. That meant it had to be a bolo bomb, unquote. The explosion blows the head off the statue. The Joker's thugs begin to fire upon Batman, who is on the rooftops. The caped crusader swings down to the ground, knocking the thugs down as he makes his way for the Joker himself. Time for plan B. The Joker grabs the mayor. My notes. Ugh, a junior high school band? I would have gone with a slightly older band. Even having just a couple more years under the belt as a high school band would make all the difference. Not to rain on the mayor's parade or anything, but if he's spending that much money on it... Oh, never mind. So this must be the statue that was dropped in later rewrites of the movie. Remember back in episode one where Jeej and I discussed a statue of Jack Nicholson that got made? I think the final version of the statue is of John T. Gotham, but painted to look like the Joker. And somewhere in... uh in New York City, the statue of Jack Nicholson's likeness still stands. I have a feeling this isn't going to end well for the mayor. Also, we we keep, keep getting glimpses of Dent and Gordon, and I kind of wish they had a bigger role to play in this story. Oh well. I mean, there's enough going on already. I just like those two characters and would like to know more. That wraps up chapter 14, so we'll take our second promo break here and return for chapter 15. Hi, this is Derek. Hi, this is John. From Gotham TV Podcast, the longest-running podcast about the TV show Gotham. We're currently covering the final season of Gotham, Season 5, which began on the 3rd of January, 2019. Yes, we'd love if you joined us. Pop on over to our website at GothamTVPodcast.com to subscribe to the podcast, where we'll be releasing an episode each week discussing each episode of the final season of Gotham. Welcome back, folks. Let's start Chapter 15. And if I have any uh, vocal quality issues, I hope you guys will excuse me. 
Um, I'm recording this a couple days after the other parts, and I am developing a, a sinus infection or something. So I'll try to keep the coughing to a minimum. I have plenty of water here, so hopefully I can get through this. I actually, um, funny story, I, I came home a bit early from work today because I was just aching from head to toe and feeling a little feverish. So I don't know what's going on with me, but I thought, well, since I have these couple extra hours, I'll go ahead and record chapter 15. And that way I can kind of just lie in bed and then edit the episode and get that done. So I uh, I started recording chapter 15, um, was doing all right, got about two thirds of the way through and then my voice just gave out. I started, had like a really itchy throat and just coughing and hacking and uh, like I'm talking about hacking to the point of gagging. It was not fun. I finally got everything kind of quieted down and powered through and I finally made it to the end and I, I thought, okay, I have that done. I don't have to worry about it, so now I'll just go ahead and, and finish editing the episode. And I went back to listen to what I had recorded of chapter 15, and it sounded horrible. I was sick enough that I forgot to pay attention to what microphone feed the Audacity program was picking up. So instead of picking up my decent microphone, it was recording through my laptop's microphone. So it was just awful. I've given given myself a few hours to rest, and I'm going to try to power through one more time. I have a lot on my plate this week, and I want to get this episode done in a, a timely manner, so I don't have to I don't have to have that hanging over my head. And I can get it to Dustin over at thebatmanuniverse.net in time for for next Thursday. All right, I better stop rambling before I use up what little bit of voice I have and uh, dig in. Chapter one, scene five. Wow, that was wrong. Chapter 15, scene one. Wow. <laughs> and you know what's bad? I'm not even on any medicine at the moment. Batman was here. Vicky wanted to yell out loud. She might have, too, if the Joker's gang wasn't still surrounding her. She had kept her cool until now, looking for a chance to escape somehow before the Joker had her disfigured or killed. But they had watched her too closely. There had been no chance of doing anything. Until now. The Batman stood on a rooftop across the street. He fired a pair of lines into the grass of Gotham Square and swept down between them, landing only a dozen feet away. The Joker's goons tried to stop him, first with their guns, then with their bodies and their fists. Batman got by them as if they weren't even there. That's when the Joker grabbed the mayor. He stuck his revolver against Bork's temple. Joker calls to Batman, What's red and bloody and has no brains? As he presses the gun against the mayor's temple. Seemingly unfazed by the Joker's having a hostage, Batman leaps onto the stage and circles the Joker. The two square off for a bit until Vicky gets an idea. Let me get this, Joker, she says, raising her camera. Unable to resist the photo opportunity, the Joker swivels himself and his captive for the best possible angle. Vicky uses the brightest flash she has. By the time the picture is snapped, Batman has crossed the stage and is waving a Joker card in front of the Joker's eyes. The Joker seems to be mesmerized by this for a moment, and Batman takes the opportunity to punch him in the face. The mayor escapes while the Joker staggers backward, but his stagger turns into a dance. Joker says, The odds are even, so I'm a leaving. You got your toys and I got mine. Joker jumps onto the statue's platform and is immediately shrouded in plumes of colored smoke. Batman starts for him, but pulls up short, knowing the Joker is gone. Instead, Batman turns toward where the Joker had left his van. Even now, the goons are piling in and take off in the vehicle. 
Batman thanks Vicky for her assistance. Vicky replies, So we're even. I don't owe you anything. Batman replies, Whatever you say. I'm going to read this last little bit of the scene because I feel like Vicky kind of redeems herself, and I'll talk about that after I read it. What did he mean by that? It was impossible to tell. There was no way you could read somebody's emotions when half their face was covered by a mask. Still, maybe she shouldn't have talked about being even. She didn't realize, until she blurted that out, how guilty she still felt about what she had done after the first time he had rescued her. If that's all she felt about the Batman. Maybe the Batman wasn't trying to tell her anything at all. Maybe she was trying to tell herself something about the Batman. It had taken her only a moment to think of all this. But in that moment, the Batman had shot another line aloft and disappeared back onto the roofs. Vicky quickly took a photo of his disappearing form. That was her job, after all. So I'm glad the old flashbulb as a distraction thing worked again. It was pretty well done. For the second time, Vicky creates a diversion for the Batman. The first one when they were in the alley and she was up on the catwalk and uh, the goons had knocked Batman out cold. Before they could shoot him, she used her camera to uh, to draw their attention away from him. And then the second time gives Batman a chance to close the distance to the Joker. So, well done, Vicky. I'm also very glad to hear that she had indeed been feeling guilty about how she'd tried to photo his identity after he rescued her the first time and, and how she ran off with the roll of film. At the time, it, it kind of struck me as a very like uncool thing for her to do, and it seemed almost at odds with the sort of character that Vicky had been portrayed as. You know, she seems very, um, I don't know how to explain, she just seems very honorable and very much a humanitarian with her putting herself into battle situations in order to photograph what's going on for the sake of journalism and historical record. The fact that she felt guilty about photographing Batman when he was unmasked kind of reaffirms for me that it was something that was out of character for her and indeed something that she wouldn't have normally done and that kind of ate away at her conscience. Okay, chapter 15, scene 2. And you didn't have film in the camera. She felt bad enough without Allie Knox rubbing it in. She had been under a little duress, after all. But they would have been great shots. No one had gotten a really good close-up of the Batman before. In fact, they still hadn't gotten a good close-up. It was the kind of mistake a film student would make. She felt terrible about it. How could she explain? Vicky settles on the excuse that one of Joker's goons had handed the camera to her, and she didn't check to see if there was film. At least, that's what she intends to say. What comes out instead is, Oh, Allie, I'm really losing it. Surprisingly, Allie doesn't press. Instead, he pats her shoulder. He changes the subject, telling Vicky that he'd followed up on the alleyway she'd asked him to look into a while back. He says, Your friend, Bruce, is pretty screwed up. Rather than sounding jealous, he actually sounds a little apologetic. He waves for her to follow him to the microfilm reader. He readies the machine, then steps out of the way for her to view the image. It's the front page of the Gotham Globe 20-some years ago. The headline reads, Thomas Wayne murdered. Prominent doctor. Wife. Slain in robbery. Unidentified gunman leaves child unharmed. But it was the photograph beneath that headline that told the real story. A pair of cops leaned over a pair of corpses. Behind them, medics stood with stretchers. But off to one side was a young boy, maybe ten years old his arms wrapped around the waist of another cop. The boy, Vicky realized, was Bruce Wayne. But it was that look on his face, a wild look full of anger and despair, as if he had gotten a glimpse at the end of the world, 
that struck her. It was the same look she had seen on Bruce's face the other day in Gotham Square. Allie wonders aloud what such a thing would do to a person. Pieces of a puzzle start shifting in her mind. The weird belt, the fact that Bruce Wayne should have been dead in her apartment, but wasn't. But he also hadn't reached out to her to assure her that he was fine. She also remembers a talk they had at Wayne Manor about finding one's true purpose in life. And here's the scene from the movie. While you were out entertaining, I've been here finding out about your street corner. Vail, I think your friend Wayne is really screwed up. <laughs> More good news. Here. thing happened in front of him. Look at the look on the face. It's the same in front of City Hall. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Fail. Don't get personal! My notes. At first I found it a little hard to believe that Vicky forgot the film. I know pretty much everybody in the world has a digital camera these days or uh, just uses their phone. But if you're old like me, uh, you remember the days of using film in a camera. When you advance a roll of film, there's a little bit of a resistance, which of course isn't there when there's no film. But I think Gardner adequately explains her lapse. You know, she was, she was indeed under duress and she also kind of kicks herself for making a film student's mistake. So I can let it slide, certainly. We also, we hear so much about Bruce's parents being killed, and it's become such a revisited trope with the character that I think it loses some of its impact. Because we're like, yeah, yeah, we get it. His parents were murdered. It's awful. Yeah, we get it. But if you stop and really think about it, Imagine yourself as a small child with your parents or your caregivers that you loved. I don't know about you, but when I was a child, my parents seemed immortal to me. They had this feeling of permanence that that they'd be there forever. And to have that sense of faith and security jerked out from under you at such a young age, if we can imagine just a little bit what that might feel like, then we can maybe regain a little of the impact and just see how that really really flipped Bruce's world upside down. He was in his formative years, after all, and, you know, something like that is going to, like uh, Allie Knox so succinctly said, really screw someone up. I don't believe becoming a vigilante would ever cross Bruce's mind if it weren't for the death of his parents. A philanthropist? Sure. Probably going into the field of medicine like his father. But a crime fighter? No, I don't think so. And is Vicky figuring out that Bruce is Batman? It'd be a little bit of a leap to reach that conclusion, but certainly not impossible. I mean, she's got to find out sooner or later, right? Chapter 15, Scene 3 Bruce woke up suddenly. He had fallen asleep on the map of Gotham City. He had been staring at it, hoping somehow that the maze of streets and buildings would somehow open up to him to show him the Joker. He looked up. Thirty video monitors looked back at him, showing thirty empty rooms. There was the slightest of noises behind him. He quickly glanced back. Alfred was quietly folding the cape of his uniform. Bruce asks Alfred if he has the file on his parents that he asked for. 
Alfred nods toward a manila folder on the desk. Bruce asks why he's so quiet, and Alfred replies, I'm getting old, sir, and I don't want to fill my days grieving for old friends or their sons. Bruce understands his point, but thinks that it was always too late for him to change his mind. It was too late for him the moment his parents died. He asks Alfred for some coffee and opens the folder. My notes, uh, poor Alfred. When I was younger, I didn't think that there was much more to their relationship than a butler and his employer. Gradually, um, the intricacies of their relationship became evident to me. Their friendship, their, their, uh, it's almost like a father-son relationship. In fact, I, oh, about a year ago, I saw a comic online or an image. I'm not sure if it was fan art or if it was from a comic. It showed Bruce going into Alfred's room in the morning to wake him up and bring him breakfast in bed and tell him that he had the day off. And Alfred was like, well, why? It's it's not my birthday. What is this all about? And Bruce just kind of smiles, his secretive little smile, and uh, and leaves the room. But it's revealed to the readers that it's Father's Day. So I, I really thought that was a touching little scene. The television show Gotham and even some of the Arkham games also do a really good job of showing the complexity of the relationship of these characters. Especially Gotham, since Bruce is a minor and Alfred is his butler and his guardian. It makes for some pretty interesting disagreements from time to time. Alfred is having to toe the line between being subservient and putting his foot down as his legal guardian. So, Sean Pertwee as Alfred is just the best. Chapter 15, Scene 4 They had the press conference on the steps of Gotham City Hall. That in itself was significant. Yesterday, Commissioner Gordon knew Mayor Borg would have led any press conference from the newly built reviewing stand across the street in Gotham Square. The mayor wanted that stand and the celebrations surrounding it to begin a renewal of all that was good about their city. But the Joker had changed all that. His murderous actions had instead turned the reviewing stand into a symbol for crime and anarchy, all the things that were wrong with Gotham. And in a way, even though the Batman frightened him off, the Joker could claim a victory. Tomorrow, the city would tear the podium down. Mayor Borg clears his throat and tells the press that the 200th anniversary birthday celebration has been postponed indefinitely. Surprisingly, this is all the usually long-winded mayor has to say. Gordon knows that the failure of the celebration also represents a failure in the mayor's career, and Gordon actually feels a little bit sorry for him. It's Dent's turn to speak to the press. We're vehemently opposed to terrorism in any form, but a toxin has been found in the coffee at the police stations. With two-thirds of our police force disabled, we simply can't guarantee public safety. A commotion interrupts Dent and draws Gordon's attention. The commissioner runs down the steps to join technicians around a monitor. He learns that the newsfeed has been hijacked again. The screen is split down the middle, with the left half showing the scene before them at City Hall, but the right half is now just snow, until it solidifies into the figure of a man sitting in an armchair in a drawing room. It is, of course, the Joker. Notes. Um, I'm not sure how wise it was for Harvey Dent to announce to the whole of Gotham City that two-thirds of their police force was down. That information seems like it would just give the green light for criminals to do their worst, because the cops would be woefully shorthanded. Um, surprisingly, I, I find myself feeling a little sorry for the mayor, too. I think he's got some uh, PTSD to work through. Alright, let's see what the Joker has to say. Chapter 15, Scene 5 Joker here. The Joker smiled convivially. 
Rather than a bizarre combination of dead white and flaming red, his face was a neutral flesh color. It almost made him look human. Now, he continued, his tone slightly chiding, you guys have said some pretty mean things, some of which, I admit, were true under that fiend Boss Grissom. He was a terrorist and a thief, but, on the other hand, he was great at bridge. Anyway, he's dead, and he left me in charge. The Joker goes on to admit that, yes, perhaps he can be a bit theatrical, but he's not a killer. He's an artist. And he loves a party. He calls for a truce and for the festivities to begin. His announcement is met with applause. Canned applause, that is. Probably not unlike what you hear to mark the end of Rest in Peace Theater segments. He continues, I even got a little present for Gotham City. At midnight, I drop $20 million cash on the crowd. The mayor takes back the microphone and says, We are not prepared to discuss any deals, but the Joker ignores him and goes on. Money, entertainment, a fight between himself and Batman. He challenges Batman. I've taken off my makeup. Let's see if you can take off yours. At this point, Bruce shuts off the TV and goes back to the police file on his parents. It has a large blue stamp across it, which reads, Unsolved. But it wasn't unsolved. Not anymore. Uh, I'm going to read this bit because I think it's uh, really well done. He remembered. There had been a radio playing somewhere. It was a hot summer night. A woman laughed, the sound drifting down from a second-story window. He was walking with his mother and father down the streets of Gotham. It was a special night. They had been to see a show, and Bruce had been allowed to stay up well past his bedtime. It was such a fine night, his father had decided they should walk for a bit before they got a cab. He remembered the quick footsteps behind them. He remembered his mother's hushed voice next to him. Tom, there's someone following us. Somehow, the three of them had started running, but they stopped when they ran into the alley. He remembered the two young hoods. One of them had a gun. He grabbed the string of pearls around his mother's neck. His father tried to grab the young punk's arm. There was a gunshot. He remembered his father falling. He remembered his mother screaming. A second gunshot. He could still see the fire from the muzzle of the gun, so bright in that dark alley. And he saw his mother fall, dead. Both his mother and father were dead. He remembered. The kid without the gun ran away. But the other one pointed his revolver right at Bruce. Tell me, kid. The kid with the gun had started. He remembered that, too. The young punk stepped forward so that Bruce could see him better in the moonlight. He smiled. Bruce remembered that smile. The Joker's smile. The punk spoke. You ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? The young Jack Napier's finger pressed lightly on the trigger. Nothing happened. Come on, a voice yelled out of the darkness. It was the voice of the other punk, Bruce realized now. Let's go, the other voice insisted. Jack Napier walked slowly from the alleyway, laughing all the time. Bruce remembered the laughter. Uh, for my notes, I'm going to focus on that reveal for this segment, because it's if you listen to this podcast from uh, episode one, you might remember when Jeej and I had a conversation, how the 89 Batman and the 66 Batman were our first experiences with Batman. Since they didn't really talk about Bruce's parents' death in the 66 Batman, I accepted that Jack Napier was the murderer of Bruce's parents from what I saw in the uh, the Tim Burton movie. I thought, okay, that's fine. That's canon. Knowing now the history of Batman, I could only imagine what sort of um, 
I don't know what sort of reaction this might have gotten from Batman fans when this movie came out. That's a pretty big change that he made. It works for um, for simplicity's sake. I feel like they were more interested in telling a tidy story rather than staying completely canon with the with the character. I, I like that we had a little bit of a red herring as to why Bruce looked startled for the first time in Vicky's apartment. There was an implication that he was startled because his belt was in view. He just realized that it was visible. But the moment he actually looked startled was when uh, the Joker first said to him, have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? And of course, that would trigger a a visceral memory for him. Now, uh, regarding Jack Napier or the Joker being the killer of his parents, I prefer that the killer is unknown. I know about Joe Chill and uh, that there's pretty much Team Joe Chill or Team Unsolved. Uh, I don't know if those groups actually exist, but there, I put a label to it. I am Team Unsolved. I think the facelessness and senselessness of the crime is a perfect metaphor for the rampant rotting of Gotham's core. It it kind of represents a bigger abstract problem. When we have a name with a murder, to me it diminishes it a little. And I know that too kind of speaks of the senselessness of the crime, that a nothing criminal could completely alter the lives of, of people from a moment's action. So I can understand why people accept Joe Chill as the killer and why people want the name to be unknown. I can accept, well, I was going to say I can, I can accept both, but I really prefer not knowing. There's a lot of discussion in the fandom about if Bruce found his parents' murderer, would he take off the cowl? Would his job be finished? To me, it just feels like he is driven by the the mystery of his parents' murder, and that's kind of what helps propel him and keep him propelled in Batman. Chapter 15, Scene 6 Alfred let Vicky in. Bruce was there, asleep in an overstuffed chair. He looked as though he was having a nightmare. His head tossed from side to side, face covered with sweat. He moaned softly, the noise coming from deep in his throat. Vicky wondered if she should try to wake him up. She took a step toward the chair. His eyes snapped open. It was him, he said clearly. Bruce blinks when he sees Vicky and asks how she got in. She replies, Alfred, and then says, Am I crazy? That wasn't just another night for either of us, was it? We got to each other, didn't we? Bruce closes the unsolved folder and sits up. Vicky starts to fumble a bit, losing some of her resolve under his gaze. You were going to tell me something at my apartment when the Joker came. What was it? Bruce looks away, but Vicky isn't prepared to let him pull away again. Why won't you let me in? she asked. Bruce stands, in a quick, fluid movement, and tells her that she got in already. Their conversation continues in an abstract manner that doesn't really truly answer any questions, until Vicky finally says, I've loved you. Every night, since I met you, but I don't know if I can love you dead. Bruce replies, I can't help you out with that. I've been trying to avoid this, but that's the way it is. I wear a cape. You take pictures. It's not a perfect world. Vicky asks again if they're going to try to love each other, but Bruce reminds her that the Joker is out there tonight, and Batman has to face him, and he turns and leaves. But Vicky thinks maybe she's starting to understand him two crazy people in a crazy world, and maybe they can make it work. My notes? That feels a lot more like Bruce. 
when it comes down to it, he knows that the Batman, that his mission must come first, that his role as protector of Gotham must come before his personal life. And boy, my my voice is on the home stretch. So thankfully, there's just one more scene left. Chapter 15, scene 7. It's another short one, so I think I can make it through without completely losing my voice. <laughs> the Joker was Jack Napier. Batman could no longer remember the moment he made that realization. He had been poring over the maps and police files, or he had had a dream. He had been in the Batcave or dozing in his study. He had been only half awake for the longest time, really. Now that he had the answer, everything fell into place. He no longer needed to sleep. All his fatigue was gone, his weaknesses forgotten. It was nighttime. Bats went out at night. He put on his gloves, his boots, his cape and cowl, then his belt, a brilliant yellow oval surrounding the emblem of a bat. The Joker had challenged him. Tonight, he would meet that challenge. He climbed into his car and headed for Axis Chemical Company. Bats go out at night. Yeah, Adam West. I'm glad he's finally going to Axis Chemical Company. When it was mentioned earlier that he was trying to find the Joker's base of operations and chemistry involved, I thought, shouldn't the Axis Chemical Company be high on your suspect list? I'm going to close up here. Thank you again for listening to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. You can find me on Twitter at BatmanBooks underscore DKP or an email at darknightprose at gmail.com. Remember, that's night with a K. For the next episode, we'll discuss chapters 16 and 17. If you have any feedback, comments, thoughts, if you want to tell me if you're Team Joe Chill or Team Unsolved, uh, reach out. Until next time, Gothamites. Happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. 